outside of Central Bookings. County jails and I'm locked down up north. Said I should have it if Scarface passed the torch. That's how they feel, Jack. But this more than rap. This that project haircut in the coldest set. This is where I hope safe punch you the coldest set. Meet you colder whenever I put a coat on the track. Never even the cheap ain't nothing. You ain't gotta like it cause the hood don't love it. You ain't gotta like it cause the hood don't love it. Watch you young niggas show us ass how come. And we're back. This is Dump on the Ump. Season 5, episode 35, ostensibly a baseball podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. Tonight is Thursday, September 19th, 2019. Coming at you from Champaign, Illinois, my name is Joel. With me this evening, as per usual, is Sam. Sam, how's it going? Hey, Joel, doing good. I'm uh, coming at you hard, hard and fast from Southampton, New York. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, tonight we are going to continue what we call the Dump on the Ump B Block Book Club. And tonight we're going to try to complete the story of Mo Berg based on the novel The Catcher Was a Spy. So if you want to pick up the first two episodes of this series, check us out on your podcast listening app, whether it's Apple, iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. So when we last, excuse me, when we last left off with Mo Berg, he had just decided not to assassinate the physicist Bono Heisenberg at the end of World War II. So, Sam, can you pick us up around that time? Yeah, I'm going to just breeze through the rest of the war, if that's okay, because not yeah. a lot of note happened. That was kind of like his the high point of his uh, work as a spy during World War II for the OSS. And that's where, actually, the movie ends, the movie rendition starring Paul Rudd. Who looks right. nothing like Moberg. Who nothing like Moberg. <laughs> so the rest of the war, uh, Berg stays in Switzerland uh, with his pal. He's got this physicist buddy who's the one who like facilitated him meeting Heisenberg in the first place. And they become like best pals. And he like hangs out with the guy's family and they go on long bike rides together. And um, the only other thing he kind of did was... Uh, and, you know, he kind of was using this guy, not, you know, this guy knew exactly what was up, but he was having this guy write letters to all of his physicist buddies all over Europe, um, getting information for them, which he was then passing along to Moberg. And then um, he also went and met with this, um, I got to look her name up, um, this female physicist who was also very famous. And that was kind of his only other thing that he did during the war. Um, yeah, look up her name. My question is, how much did Moberg actually know about physics? A lot, apparently. He, like, studied it pretty... He was, like, a like a really intense reader. And so when he was like interested in the subject, he would just read book after book after book. So he was able to actually speak to these, like the, the value that he brought to his job was that he was able to speak and read and uh, understand the language that these scientists were speaking. Um, 
Uh, so anyway, um, at the end of the war, there were a lot of people, uh, there were a lot of people who were, um, you know, a lot of stuff went on in the war. And then after the war was over, there was kind of a lot of, uh, reckon, uh, just not reconciling, but a lot of, uh, you know, what just happened going on in the U.S. government. And one of those things yeah. was the OSS, which they downsized by like 90 percent. And it became the what is now the modern day CIA. OK, um, so immediately after World War II, the OSS is essentially disbanded and the CIA is formed. Um, and kind of the first job of the CIA was to figure out what the fuck the OSS was doing because it was like <laughs> you know we we you know we talked about it briefly it was kind of a slapdash thing it's like we're at war we have no intelligence division of our military let's create one all at once you know what i mean we just like throw endless money at it and so basically the beginning of the CIA was just essentially an accounting team um, trying to figure out what all the money the OSS spent was spent on. And <clears throat> that was kind of the beginning of Moberg's troubles of uh, with the CIA was they were asking him, you know, even the OSS asked him for detailed reports on what he was spending money on. Um, and he, which he never spending money. He would yeah, go he stayed at like hotel. the nicest hotels and ate fancy meals and bought fancy wine, blah, blah, blah. And he never did it. He would refuse to like fill out expense reports, essentially. <laughs> I, me too. Fuck yeah. Fuck expense reports. Right. I, hey, we're all on the same page here. Yeah. But, the, C, the new CIA was not down with that sort of like cavalier uh, man of international man of intrigue sort of person. Um, and so immediately after World War II, the Cold War starts uh, and Mo Berg really felt like he had a lot to offer the new fledgling CIA because he believed the biggest threat to you know, he was very early on in believing that the biggest threat to, um, you know, the United States was the USSR getting sure. a bomb. Um, and in the wake of World War II, the USSR was like, you know, not even very secretly kidnapping Nazi physicists, like <laughs> specifically with the intention of like having them build a nuclear bomb for the for the Soviet Union. So um, he was like, why aren't the, you giving me a job? And the CIA was like, why won't you fill out your expense reports? <laughs> what is it from uh, Office Space? What are those called? I don't know. You know what I'm talking about? No. Your TI forms? I'm Googling it. Okay, keep going. <clears throat> so anyway, he... And this was is kind of like was the beginning of what essentially was the rest of Moberg's life was he kind of refused GPS. Go in, on. He kind of refused any job that wasn't intelligence work and nobody in the intelligence community wanted to give him a job because, you know, he was like this 
I travel around Europe and I speak to like the brightest minds and I travel in these circles. And like, that's not the, what the CIA was all about. The CIA was about very much, much more calculated, much more secretive, um, and, uh, organized essentially. So he didn't really fit, but he always felt upset about it. And he, uh, was offered when he was like awarded the Congressional Medal of Freedom or something. It was the highest wartime um, <coughs> civilian honor, essentially. <clears throat> yeah, he, he was never military. Right, exactly. Yeah. And he refused it um, because uh, – and, you know, everything that he did in the war was essentially classified. And as crazy and amazing a storyteller as Moberg was, he never told that story of exactly what it was that he did, <clears throat> the details of what he did in the war. <clears throat> so um, he kept trying to get intelligence work. Finally, in the 50s, the CIA agreed to hire him to go to Europe reconnect with some of his old uh, physicist contacts and see what he could figure out about what was going on with the nuclear program in the Soviet Union. Right. So he essentially went to Europe, ran up huge tabs at really fancy hotels. And uh, when he came back, he had no new information for them. So um, what was he doing? He like wouldn't tell anybody what he was doing. He like wouldn't. He wouldn't like write a detailed description of his like movements in Europe. Like he didn't uncover any information. Um, it was a huge failure essentially on his part. And he, uh, you know, but he felt like it wasn't. Like he felt like he had yeah. done his job and was really upset that the CIA was upset with him essentially. Yeah. Do you know um, what countries he was in? Was it all Eastern Europe? Or? No, I think he was, you know, he went to Switzerland, he went to Germany, he went to Italy. He, like, reconnected with all of these people that he had met during World War II, all of these uh -huh. Okay. Um, and, you know, he didn't find out any new information. He just figured out that a lot of these people were being either kidnapped or hired by the Soviet Union or, you know, coerced through other means. Um. And he, <clears throat> so the Soviet, I mean, so the CIA never hired him again. Um, right. And, and that was kind of like the great failure of his life was that he never, he couldn't continue his dream job of being a spy after World War II, essentially. That's um, very interesting. So he considered being a spy his dream job in a way that he, Never thought of being a baseball player as his dream job. Well, no, I think that his, uh, I think that the, well, according to the book anyway, I didn't know the guy, but like, <laughs> the, book, the book writes it out as like the baseball player uh, was like a means to an end for him because he didn't really want to play baseball. Right. He just wanted to be on the team. And get the... The, the benefits of it. Right. He wanted to, like, have the mystique of being a baseball player. He wanted to work only, like, 
four hours a day only during the summer. He wanted to, you know, travel and stay in fancy hotels without paying for them. He wanted to do all that stuff. Uh-huh. Um, and, but when he became an intelligence officer, that really kind of felt like his life's passion, I guess. Right, his calling. Right. And so when the CIA kind of kicked him to the curb, what he did with the rest of his life was travel around telling everybody that he worked for the CIA, essentially. Even though he didn't. Even though he never held down a real job for the rest of his life, actually. Uh-huh. Um, and not because he was unemployable. People offered him jobs all the time. And he occasionally took some, like, consulting work uh you know, because he was a lawyer, remember, also. And he uh, took some consulting work uh, dealing with, like, some Major League Baseball stuff. So um, he, you know, uh, you know, consulted on an expansion team that I don't think actually ended up happening. Um, and, you know, he uh, did some work in Canada with baseball. I can't remember exactly what that was, but he didn't really he didn't really have a real job. But what he did do was just kind of live off the generosity of this huge network of friends that he had uh-huh. um, that he had accumulated over the years as a ball player and government worker. And and it's really strange because he just kind of had a large network of like benefactors who essentially would just put him up and take care of him just for his company like he was really good storyteller and like really good company and there's just so the whole last section of this book is basically like anecdote after anecdote of like moberg showed up at my house one day and he stayed for like three months and like (laughs) he only had one suit and he would wash it his like underwear in the bathroom sink at night and i got up to go to the bathroom and all his clothes were hanging up and he'd like hand wash them in the sink and this is like <laughs> like i'm not even joking like 50 stories like that um sam that's what i'm gonna do for you you know i'm gonna show up at your doorstep in you know after the war and crash on your couch for three months yeah that's fine yeah um, <laughs> Yeah, so so anyway, he just, tra- yeah, he just would, like, travel around. He, like, and then he was, like, really good friends with these two, this couple. And then, like, the husband went to Baltimore to visit his mother. And then Moberg showed up at the front door. And the wife was like, oh, hey, uh, so-and-so's not home. He's coming back tonight. We're going to go out to dinner. Totally, you should come join us. And then Moberg was like, your husband's not coming back. He's leaving you. He's in England right now. What? <clears throat> right. And so this guy had just like, I guess Moberg said he never had taken money for this, but he like, essentially this guy was like, Hey, I'm leaving my wife. Will you tell her? And then Moberg ah. did tell her. And then he like started dating this woman for a while. <laughs> That's nuts. Yeah. Um, and he just would like. Although I guess he, it seems to me from what you just said that she was not too upset about it. But, no, I think she was. I think she was. She was totally blindsided. Like she yeah. thought her husband was in Baltimore 
and he was in London or something like that. Uh huh. That's cool. So, <clears throat> it was very weird. Or he like didn't like start dating her, but he kind of like stepped into the role as husband for like a while. Okay. And was just like taking her out to dinner and like buying her. It was just a weird thing. Hello, and, this is my fake husband. Oh. Right. Yeah. And no, and it wasn't even like that. She was like, I had no idea what was going on, but it was like, uh, I don't know. It was strange. And so, and then he also like, nobody ever knew where he was. So he'd like run in, you know, he'd be like, call, he'd be all of a sudden be in Washington, D.C. and call somebody up or he'd like run into someone on the street and then he would just live with them for a while, just randomly. Um, He like lived with Joe DiMaggio in a hotel room for like three weeks. Um, They met at a bar. And, or no, they like knew each other and were out drinking at a bar. And then Joe DiMaggio was like, Moberg was going to go back to Newark to his brother's house. And it was late. And Joe DiMaggio was like, why don't you just stay with me at my hotel? And then he just stayed. Um, <laughs> and Joe DiMaggio was like, God damn it. Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, and he also was like, really like, he would go to a lot of baseball games, right? Cause he had no job. And so he spent his time like reading and going to baseball games and hanging out with sports writers, essentially like going back to his old hangout with sports writers things. And he'd just go to baseball games, sit in the press box. And then there was this one sports reporter from Chicago. It's this younger guy who Mo lived with him in his hotel room whenever he was on the East Coast, like every summer for nine years. Huh. Um, and so the guy would come to New York and then like Mo would like move into his hotel room and then he would go down to uh, D.C. and Mo Berg would go with him to D.C. <laughs> <laughs> and... <clears throat> It, and then, like, and the guy was just, like, you know, he wasn't paying for his hotel room, and he was kind of happy to have some company, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, also, question. I mean, yeah. so, like, I went to a, a lot of baseball games when I was unemployed in, like, 2008, 2009. Right. In fact, that's kind of how I got into baseball was being unemployed and not doing anything else. Right. Which I think might be a recurring, like, I feel like a lot of men have had a similar experience of, well, I was unemployed and didn't have a lot of money, so I just went to baseball games all the time. Right. Um, My second thought. Not a bad life. Not a bad life. It's a good life. Yeah. I highly recommend it, except for the money issue. My other thought was, like, Moberg seems weird. Like, like all these stories make him seem out to be kind of creepy, just kind of showing up at people's doors unannounced and then never leaving. Yeah. But you talked last week, he was a charming guy. Right. People were happy to have him. Yeah, I think that's very interesting. Um, and he was, like, this great storyteller, and he also had, like, a very strict moral code. 
And so he would stay with these people, but he felt like he was paying for his keep in stories and company, essentially. Oh, interesting. Uh-huh. And a lot of people, like a lot of the people who were hosting him, also felt that way. Um, and so, um, so anyway, he just spent most of his, like, rest of his life, and he wasn't like an old man at the end of World War II. You know, he was... Right. In his 40s, I guess. Um, And so he, anyway, kept that going, bopping around from place to place. um, And he spent, like, kind of the end of his life, he spent living with, in Newark, with first his brother, who he lived with for, like, 10 years, I guess, um, as, like, a primary crash pad and then after his brother kicked him out his sister who uh-huh. also lived in newark his brother and sister are like really interesting characters in their own right his brother was like a very uh successful doctor and was always really resentful of his younger brother because he felt like he was the one who was like did the right thing by his family he, like grew up and became a doctor Mm-hmm. Um, but like everybody loved his little brother the most because and he like thought his little brother was a bum because but, he was um, he was <laughs> and um uh and then his sister was a kindergarten teacher and a very successful one and then became a teacher's teacher like mm-hmm. teaching other teachers yeah um and they hated each other who? Uh, Moe's older brother Sam and his younger and his older sister Ethel. Oh, they hated each other. Right. Not they didn't hate Mo. Well, Sam kind of hated Mo, but um, they had a really a weird relationship. Uh, Mo and his siblings, but him and his older brother, like they had, like they didn't like each other. Um, and Sam, like r- really, but felt obligated to take him in and like take care of him. Um, uh. out of like a sense of like very strong sense of family duty um, and Mo didn't like Sam but one time Sam had a heart attack and like was in the hospital for three weeks and Mo was like sitting outside of his door for the entire time yeah um, and like read all of the science journal like the medical journals on his brother's condition so that he could talk to the doctors about it Mm-hmm. Interesting thing about that is he never once actually went into the room and visited his brother. He just sat outside the entire time and talked to the doctors. Huh. That's weird. <laughs> yeah. Um and then and then finally, because it was very difficult to live with Moberg, because he you know, we talked about the newspapers and the books, and essentially he just filled the entire house. Um and then he said Sam kicked him out finally. Uh-huh. And and Mo, you know, <clears throat> disappeared as he does for like however many months. And you know, his brother was like frantically trying to track him down. He thought maybe he'd killed him cuz he was old at this point. He was in his 60s. Okay. Um and uh and eventually moved in with his sister. Um, who, you know, wouldn't talk to the other brother, but loved Mo. Um, 
and he lived with her until he died uh, from internal bleeding, I think. And so, and it was like really kind of a, a really strange end of his life because everyone kind of assumed he like dropped all these hints that he was a spy working for the cia which of course he wasn't and and just traveled around the country kind of mooching off of people he spent a lot of time at princeton his alma mater and spent a lot of time in dc trying to get work um how hard but not really trying to get work right like no no you tried to get work with the cia for real Okay. Um, and he also like uh, had really serious financial problems because he had been an investor in like a kind of silent investor in a company that filed for bankruptcy. And he refused to also file for bankruptcy out of pride. Uh-huh. And so everybody came after him directly for all of the the, the like money that they owed. And back, I guess it was the government came after him for back taxes. Um. And that was enough. He felt very betrayed by his government because of that, because he felt like he shouldn't have to deal with that sort of shit. Um, but he also like, you know, a lot of people, he knew everybody. So he also connected a lot of people like for like, you know, people when he did work, people hired him as a consultant, basically for him to just like make phone calls to people that he knew like he you know he was hung out with nelson rockefeller and he knew all of these like famous baseball players and a lot of people in the media and a lot of people in the government and like he was kind of a well-connected vagrant you know right okay okay yeah yeah a couple of questions yeah question one uh the wikipedia page uh, talks quite a bit about Moberg's love of Israel and really wanting to be involved in the founding of the state of Israel. Does the book talk about that at all? Not really. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Um, hmm. Okay. And then how did Moberg die? Internal bleeding, I think. Yeah. But he had he like was, a heart problem. Yeah. And it says here his last words were, how did the Mets do? Yeah. He's like, how did the, he asked the nurse? The nurse came into his room and he's like, how did the Mets do this afternoon? And then he died. <laughs> um, and then here's the crazy thing: uh-huh. he died. He was cremated uh, and buried, right? Uh-huh. And then his sister, who maybe was bipolar, uh, I think, or she like. Yeah, something something was up with her. She was kind of crazy, but she dug up his ashes. And oh, and this is like kind of important because nobody ever knew like throughout his life, his family, his friends, no one ever knew where Mo was and when he'd like show up. Uh-huh. Uh, Cuz he rarely was where he was supposed to be and like would show up in the most random of places, you know? Like Yeah. Somebody from D.C. would be walking down the street in San Francisco, and then there would be Mo Berg, who would then stay in his hotel for a few weeks. You know, it's like... Yeah. <clears throat> I love um, that. Right. You know, it's cool. Yeah. So she essentially grave robs his ashes with the intent of bringing them to Israel and having them buried there. Okay. Um, and 
as you may or may not know, cremation is against kosher law or whatever it is. So the the rabbi she was in contact with was like, you can't bury him in this in these graveyards. You just can't do it because it's against our rules, you know? Right. But and so she was like talking to him, trying to find a suitable place to scatter his ashes uh, or to a place to, you know, put him in Israel. And he suggested this place. And so when his brother, Sam, found out that she had done this, it was after she had died because he was he read about it Um, (laughs) and he spent the rest of his life trying to figure out what she did with his ashes and where she buried, reburied them or scattered them. And never to this day has anyone figured that out. So nobody still knows where Mo Berg is. That's okay. like the kind of, the kind of excellent, like final mystery of this guy is that like his ashes were either scattered or buried somewhere other than his grave. And nobody knows where it is. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Yeah, I'm just thinking, like, that's one of my favorite things to do. I remember one time I was in San Francisco hanging out. This was like 10 years ago. I just saw a friend from New York. And it was like, hey, what's up? Let's go get a drink. When, and then when, you lived in his hotel for like? <laughs> and then I lived in his hotel for six years. <laughs> Yeah, I love that stuff. Um, I could see the appeal of that, I guess, is all I'm saying. Right, that lifestyle. That lifestyle, yeah. Right, never working and going to baseball games all the time. And crashing on your friend's couches and just kind of showing up. Crashing on Joe DiMaggio's bed, you know? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, no. There's this whole, like, aura of mystery around the life of Mo Boog, which I understand and appreciate, but on the other hand, eh, wouldn't you like to just go around the country crashing on people's couches and not pay for anything? Yeah, kind of. It was yeah. also like uh, he had a very, like, you know, he was a very secretive person, which is what drew him to intelligence work in the first place. And it was like nobody ever really knew him, not even his family, because the only thing that he let people kind of see was like this persona that professor mo you know the uh which kind of started in his ball player days where it's like i can create this kind of fantasy person around myself <clears throat> that's not that maybe is based on the real person but is not the same and that uh-huh. person can be whoever or i want him to be and that's kind of how he lived his life uh-huh. So, you know, this whole, like, never staying in one place for very long kind of had, like, a dark, depressing side to it, which was, like, he was kind of terrified of spending too much time with any one person because they might get to know him too well and, like, see him for who he really was. Yeah, and maybe he's afraid of that. Right, and that's, yeah, that's, like, the kind of speculation of the end of this book is that, like, he maybe was, like, didn't like himself very much, and that's why he created this kind of super spy persona around himself. Right, I could see that. So, uh, because he, he, like, multiple times in his life also entered into deals with um, 
publishing companies to either write or be written about like autobiography or autobiography and at every single time backed out. Oh, that's interesting. Uh-huh. Yeah, because if you write your autobiography, then at least you can control um, the narrative that's being written about you. Yeah. I, yeah, he also wasn't much of a writer. That was also kind of a problem. Like, he wrote a lot, but it was, like, never very coherent or good. Like, uh-huh. his intelligence reports were always too long and kind of discombobulated. And, like, um, you know, one of the things that the CIA tried to have him do when he got back from the war was, like, write an entire summary of everything he did in the two or three years that he was abroad for the OSS, and he could never do that. He, like, never turned that in. Even though he tried to start writing it multiple times, he tried to start writing an autobiography multiple times, but he sometimes would just, like, fill an entire notebook. Like, like they found this notebook where he had just written this one person's name over and over and over and over again, like, thousands of times to fill an entire notebook. That's not good. Yeah. And a lot of random stuff like that. Um, I also feel like he could have become a serial killer really easily in a different, you know, had right. a few things gone slightly differently. Right. And who's to say that he didn't, you know? Right. So there's this article in the New York Times from 2018, Who Was Moberg? And there are a couple of quotes that I want to run past you and and see what you think about them. Okay. So the first one is by George Will, the uh, conservative Washington Post columnist. Uh Uh-huh. And his quote is, Baseball is all about espionage. Catchers are being spied on all the time. That's why they hide their signals to the pitcher down in their crotch. The second quote is from Ben Lewin, who directed the movie about Moberg. And his quote is, Baseball is a game of deception, secrets, and strategy. Moe's role as catcher was, in a way, the head deceiver. So the skills he learned as a baseball player served him well as a spy. Sam, do you think that there's anything to that analogy of the using baseball as deception and then being a spy as deception and then basically living the rest of his life out as a series of deceptions? I mean, first of all, those two quotes were essentially the exact same. Well, they're, so like, yeah, yeah. Why, why are they, like, why did they put those two quotes in there? Like, why didn't they just use one of them? A. Okay, blame the New York Times for that, not me. Right. Second of all, like, I mean, I guess so, but that's, like, a little too obvious, I think. Uh-huh. I think that the more realistic thing is that like baseball to him was like a cover it was a a way for him to like 
you know, if you're a baseball player, you're a celebrity and you're larger than life and who you are is only what gets written about you in the newspaper. And like, that's, that's the deception. It's not like hiding your signals from the man on first, you know right. what I mean? Like, yeah. <laughs> it's like creating this, you know, alter, I'm a big league ball player, alter ego, uh, more than it's about like the, like, it's, it's like I don't want you to see my signals. It's like, well, fucking obviously, you know, this but is like that's the game. That's the game. And there's like been a million baseball players since then who haven't been spies or particularly secretive, and many of them have been catchers. You know what I mean? Like, yes. fucking Yadier Molina is not going to become a like spy <laughs> for the CIA when he retires <laughs> from baseball. You know what I mean? Like, as far as we know. As far as we know. Um, Maybe he already is. Sam. Right. Well, maybe he's a bad example because he probably is. Yeah. But fucking Buster Posey is not going to become a spy when he <laughs> retires from Major League Baseball. Okay. Gotcha. Like that is, I can guarantee you. Uh huh. Huh. That's really interesting. Uh, strange life. Um, I think I've mentioned this before. There's a podcast that I've been listening to called Moonrise about. Uh-huh the U.S. and Soviet space race. And the first half of the podcast is, uh, it doesn't talk about Mo Berg, but it talks about the race to steal Nazi scientists. Oh, nice, yeah. At the end of World War II. And it talks yep. about uh, von Braun, Bruno von Braun. Doesn't yeah. mention Heisenberg, but uh, it's very interesting. So I actually recommend that podcast if anyone is uh, interested in that more of that story um Werner von Braun and Mo Berg also friends oh really yeah oh talk about that well I don't know they just kind of like traveled in the same circles like one of the things that Mo Berg would do is like go and visit his old physics buddies at like Caltech or MIT or like you know in New York City you know and he would he just like traveled in those Physics circles as well. Uh-huh. And he knew Werner von Braun. And he That's knew cool. Werner von Braun. Yeah, Paul Rudd looks absolutely nothing like Mo Berg. Right. I think that's very strange. <laughs> All right, any last comments? Let's wrap this up. This is a bit like... Really interesting. What's next on your reading list also? That's my question. I don't know. I thought that our listeners were going to tweet at us and give yeah. us recommendations. Okay. Well, if you guys have recommendations, do that because I want to continue this. I like I like book club. Um, I also like the idea of focusing historically on a figure like this. That's very cool. Um, yeah. You know, don't be a Nazi. Uh, yeah, I think my big takeaway from this was also don't be a Nazi. Yeah, yeah. And if you're a retired baseball player, help us fight the Nazis. Right, and apparently, according to the New York Times, if you're a catcher, then you're also a fucking super spy. <laughs> I guess so. Yeah, the New York Times doesn't understand baseball. Yes, yeah, seriously. It's like <laughs> they're like, sports are like sports stuff. <laughs> Yeah, that's exactly what they like. Yes. <laughs> All right. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening. This has been Dump on the Up, ostensibly a baseball podcast. The book is The Catcher Was a Spy. The author is Nicholas Dowdall. Check it out if you uh, get the chance. Also, the movie starring, um, what's his name? I just said it. Paul Rudd. Paul Rudd is on Netflix. Is, is that it? right? You watched it. What was? What did you watch it on? I saw it in the theaters. Oh. Alright, I think it's on Netflix, but check Wait, it out. Did I? No, I might have seen it on Netflix. I think it's on Netflix. Yeah. Check it out, Catch It Was a Spy. Just know that Paul Rudd does not look anything like... Yeah, so when you're watching the movie and you're looking at Paul Rudd, just imagine somebody who looks completely different than that. Like the author. And that's, and that's, what, and that's what he looks like. Yeah. Moberg. <laughs> Moberg. Catch It Was a Spy. Alright, uh, check us out on all your social media platforms. Dump on the up. Although, hey, if you listen to, I've got to throw this in there. I was on the Bomani Jones podcast uh, the other day. So check that out. Um, the September 17th episode. Talking about my love of Lorenzo Kane. It's pretty funny. I highly recommend that also. Um, yeah. All right, great. For Sam, my name is Joel. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good evening and a pleasant tomorrow. I got the whole block up. You ain't gotta like it cause the hood don't love it. You ain't gotta like it cause the hood don't love it. Watch a young nigga show us ass on to Baltimore, I'ma kill it. I buy a morgan, the man at the public house, the plastic couch of a section eight tenant, the regal window is tinted, the air conditioner broke, but I'm cool enough to ensure you my ride is an Eskimo, huh?